spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Right now, we need all the heart we can get, and we've got it for you. It's episode 311 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. This is definitely a time where we're looking for some hope, looking for a hero. And if you've read Canto from IDW Publishing, we will de- you will definitely find that volume one of Canto is out right now. You were actually able to pick that. You're actually able to pick that up in print as well. Just happen to have David Boer and Drew Zucker with me on the show this week, the creators of the comic. That to just we're gonna dive in to this character that everybody seems to have fallen in love with. I know I certainly did when I reviewed the first issue. So I can't wait to talk to them about more Canto. Yes, I will have more comic book reviews this week, digital style from DC. Actually, gonna jump into Danger Zone. As well, going to give you some ever-evolving nerd news. I actually have a trailer to talk about, so I'm pretty excited about that. But it all gets started with what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Jackson Landon, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, with the current situation right now, if you're reading brand new books, I know what you're reading on. And it is time for what we're reading. Digital Style and DC has put out now all of the issues of DC's Black Label's Batman last night on Earth from Scott Snyder and of course pencils by Greg Capullo, Jonathan Galepian on the inks, Fico Placencia on the colors, and Tom Napolitano on the letters. I remember reviewing the first issue of this back when it came out a few months ago, it seems like. And it was a very, very interesting story where, spoiler alert for the first issue, it's been out for a while, so I don't really feel bad about spoiling it. Basically, it, it kind of starts out with, with Alfred trying to convince Bruce that he killed his parents in the alleyway. And it was really intense, really crazy. Turns out it was all a ruse because there's nothing left. The, basically, everything's been destroyed. Everybody's dead sort of thing. And, and Bruce just won't accept it. Batman goes on a journey with Joker's head in a bottle, by the way, which is very, very funny and very, very interesting throughout the entire story. That we have to do this. And he's, you know, on the quest basically to find out A, what really happened, and B, exactly how he can stop it and he can put things right. Now, this all kind of started again from the first issue when Lex Luthor can convince regular everyday citizens to rise up against the Justice League. That's kind of how everything all started. And then you have Omega. And this is where I can't really spoil anything because going to talk a little bit more about the third issue here than, than anything else, because that is the, the conclusion to the story. And I will say, you know, Wonder Woman's part of this as well. We know that from the first issue as well, so that's not really a spoiler. We get some, we get a revelation at the end of the second issue as to another Gotham ally. That That's the, that's, that's the most I think I'm going to say about that, that, that's joined a very interesting group for a very good reason, as it turns out, we find out in the third issue. So we get to see some familiar faces. But remember, all these faces are a little bit older because Bruce has basically been out of commission for several years. 
and nobody thought that he would ever come back, this Bruce anyway, and now he has. And again, just trying to find out what what is really going on with this world now. And, and Joe Chill was involved in this whole thing. It seemed like this was the most elaborate plan ever by who exactly though. So who is Omega? We find out who Omega is in this third issue. I will say I wasn't totally surprised by who Omega was, but but in the reasoning for what Omega was doing and everything, I thought that that was the really interesting part of this whole thing and how the ideals between him between him and I couldn't help but compare him to the Batman who lasts from Dark Knight's Metal, which involved a lot of the same people, ironically enough, because it's almost like he seems like Omega basically has taken up the mantle of what seems like an evil Batman. Right. So and that is the Batman who laughs times a million. So I will say that as far as Omega is concerned, while there is ruthlessness there. It's obviously there's more calculatedness to it. There's more planning to it. Whereas the Batman who laughs is just brutal for the sake of being brutal and seems to have this just crazy, weird power and ability to just basically do whatever the hell he wants to do. But Omega, there's a lot more calculatedness into it. And Omega's also got the villains on his side. And it almost seems like Scarecrow's like his right hand, which is very, very interesting. And basically when there there's an uprising in this third issue, I don't think that's that's a spoiler at all. I could I can kind of tell you there's a very much a last stand type of situation against Omega's plan. And we have a couple of things going on. You've got Batman and Omega kind of going, you know, they're, they're going to go face to face. You know that from the covers anyway. And then you've got the other group who's going to try and foil the other half. Of Omega's plan. There's one thing that happens in this issue. A little bit of help help that Batman gets. And it's it's a very good callback from earlier on in this run that I that I thought was funny throughout. And it was super funny to get the reveal in this third issue. This is not a book where you expect stuff to be funny, right? But it really, really was. And I also thought it was interesting how this whole thing ended. Once we get that conclusion and then there's like an epilogue afterwards and the end result of that, I like that that was the focus. And I can't, gosh, I can't really tell you why though. That's the only problem. I don't want to spoil, spoil the ending, but I thought it made sense given how the climax of the, of the showdown ended and where things are going to pick up after the fact. That's, that's one thing I could tell you. It just feels right when Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo are working together. It, it's just one of those things that, that works so well. There's something about Greg Capullo's Batman art that I always seem to gravitate to. I don't know if it's just the way that he draws that suit or what it is, or the way he draws the cowl and the facial expressions for Batman, but they're just always so spot on, and I feel it just a little bit more, and I really like the designs for Omega as well. Scarecrow was creepy as hell throughout this entire issue. And the aged up characters I thought were really, really cool as well. So if you're not reading Batman The Last Night on Earth, you're definitely going to want to grab that from DC's Black Label. Digitally, I'm sure there'll be some print stuff for that available at some point as well. 
Really quickly, I want to get to a, an, another digital first, which is from Danger Zone, and it's Cutman Number 1 by Alexander Banks, Jongman doing the writing there, Robert Ahmad on the art, and D.C. Hopkins on the letters. This follows a story about a man named Hank Kelly. Now, Hank Kelly's got some problems. Let's just put it that way. He's in therapy. He's got some family issues, and the guy is definitely not all together. Let me just put it that way. But we find out that he can't die. And that's not a spoiler because it's literally in the description for the book. But there's a lot of stuff that happens before that. It really sets the stage for his life and and where he's going to be going and, and what this chapter that's in his life currently really means. And then something happens that gives him that revelation that he can't die. And the aftermath of that is really, really interesting because it jumps right into something that I didn't really think. This isn't where I thought they would go early on in this story. I didn't think that, that it would take the angle that it did. And I think that, that, that it was really interesting that it happened that way. And his reaction to what he sees, Hank, I'm talking about Hank Kelly's, is also quite interesting and, and and it's kind of a bummer though because there is one little thing that kind of isn't resolved in this first issue and and it happens right during his accident when he finds out that he can't die and, I, and i'm hoping that issue two picks up on that if you've read this already you know exactly what i'm talking about but then we find out that there's also consequences to his new abilities let's just say and man is in an eye opener let me tell you. So, and, and he doesn't know about this yet either. And if he does, and when he does, how will he react to it? That's my big question right there. Especially how he reacted to his events in, from the hospital. I should say, how is he going to react if, if and when he finds out this news? That's going to be the key to how much you're going to like or not like this character going forward. I can tell you that much. Right now, the art's very, very interesting. It's it's kind of a black and white with a bluish hue to it. It's definitely different. I wouldn't say like it's not like the greatest art that I've ever seen. It's actually got some I got I've got some Archie comics vibes to it. If Archie wasn't fully colored, sort of thing. But it, it was it was very interesting shading and texturing. I really actually I actually kind of dug it. A little bit, right? I mean, it didn't blow me away, but I, I, I kind of dug it at first. I was like, eh, I'm not too sure. And then once I started to get used to it, I, it really grew on me. So I thought it was really, and it, and it sort of fit in with the story as well. And it seems like the colors come out at random times too. It's not, the colors aren't always there. There's definitely some, a, a lot of black and white heavy and a lot of blues, but then there's colors that sort of pop up randomly I guess as needed, which is very, very interesting angle to take. So I'm certainly interested. I'm not ready to throw this in the digital pull box just yet, but I'm certainly interested to go on to the next issue and find out exactly where this thing is going to go because Cutman has definitely piqued my interest. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Not a whole lot of stuff to watch, so what am I going to review? I guess you'll have to find out next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Sometimes even a nanite infusion takes a little bit of time. That's right, since there's really not much going on in the way of new series that are coming out and obviously new movies right now, I never got a chance 
to review the Bloodshot movie, the very first ever movie from Valiant Entertainment, Sony Pictures, well, Columbia Pictures. Anyway, so I thought that why not do a spoiler-filled review of Bloodshot this week? So maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, of course, starring Vin Diesel, who plays Ray Garrison, who is the nanite-infused Bloodshot, who was a soldier, by the way, Spoilers from here on out in case you didn't hear me a second ago. So he played a soldier that ends up dying. And we well, we don't, here's the thing, though. And I don't really want to get into the whole, the whole, you know, everything that happened in the movie. You know, I don't really do that on these reviews for the show before. But here's the thing. So he supposedly dies at the hand of somebody who's trying to figure out what was going on with a with a hostage situation that he that he broke up at when he was a member of the military but you find out from project rising spirit who's responsible for the for the bloodshot project and a lot of other things that are going on as well that you know it was kind of a memory simulation type of situation right so you don't really know and they never really established whether it really happens at all, or if this is just a memory recreation that he has. Obviously, you feel like the member, the memories of his wife are real, right? So that must have happened in some capacity, but the aftermath of that, did that happen? Did that not happen? Who knows? Because they don't really explain it in the, in the movie at any point. That's, that's just it. Maybe it's implicit. I don't know. It's just there. That was the thing about this movie is this movie didn't really go into a whole lot of, well, they obviously explain project rising spirit. And if you, if you're a valiant comics fan, you already know about that. And here's the thing. And I want to make this clear to any valiant fan that might be listening to this because I am a valiant fan have been for years now. And I have loved bloodshot. I love the Lemire run. I loved what they did with a couple of the other runs as well. The Lermere run just stands out to me so, so much. It's hard for me to to kind of go away from that. And of course, the early stuff as well. But at the same time, I, I also have to look at this objectively for anyone who doesn't know about the character, right? And there's certain things that, as Bloodshot fans, we know because we've read the comics, right? Well, what about anybody that hasn't read the comics and I'm not sure that this movie was very faithful to the comics or really had much of a chance to be. I actually think that the comics do a much better job at explaining what Project Rising Spirit actually is and what they do. They, we don't even really get into that other than this guy's making weapons for the military. And when I say guy, I mean that quite literally because we're talking about Guy Pierce's Dr. Emil Harding. And he's ultimately the villain in all of this, right? You think you've got other villains. And obviously, Jimmy Dalton, who's played by Sam Hugan, is, is also a villain. Uh, he's, he's, more like, he's more like the hammer of the villain, right? It, it, he's kind of the weapon that the, vil, that the main villain uses to try and keep Bloodshot away from him. Basically, that's kind of where we're at here. That, that's kind of what Jimmy Dalton is, really. So, but the, as far as getting into, you know, like even why Project Rising Spirit is bad, they don't really establish that. You're just supposed to assume that it's bad because you've got, you know, because 
Guy Pierce is playing his usual jerk character, and Jimmy Dalton's kind of an asshole, right? So you just sort of assume that what they're doing is not good, and obviously they're screwing with Vin, with Vin Diesel's head, you know, Ray Garrison's head, to pick off people that were part of Project Rising Spirit one by one because they know too much. And that's kind of all we get, right? They're being dishonest with Ray Garrison. They're using him as a hitman, basically, unbeknownst to him, by using a memory of the murder of his wife right in front of him. And that's kind of what they're doing to cover their tracks for what exactly they don't really kind of establish what that is unless I missed it. And if I did, I was paying attention to the movie. They did not do a good job explaining exactly what it was that was going on. And again, if you are a valiant comics fan and you've read these comics, you know, this character, you know why project rising spirit is evil, but you have to, for anyone who's not familiar with this character, if you want these movies to continue and you want this to be something that you could make a sequel for, you have to explain that. At least a little. I mean, you don't have to unveil the entire thing in the movie, right? Because maybe Project Rising Spirit, there's more to it than that, and you kind of know that there is. But maybe there's more to it than that, and maybe you peel that onion in future movies, you hope. You don't want to assume you're going to get a sequel either, but maybe you just... You, you give fans a little bit. I'm not I'm not sure they gave enough other than the subtle, standard, bad guy movie cues, right? I mean, you, obviously, every action movie kind of has the same tropes for their bad guys, right? Or at least in certain respects. And that's kind of what the Bloodshot movie gives you. They give you a reason to hate certain characters, and they give you a reason to love certain characters. And I got to tell you, if I'm if I loved one character in this movie more than anyone else, it was Lamorne Harris and Lamorne Morris, excuse me, is Wilfred Wiggins. Wiggins was my favorite character in the movie. I loved Wiggins. And you know what? We didn't really get enough Wiggins. We don't even meet him until more than halfway through this movie. And I thought his character breathed life into the second half of this movie. In the first half, a little bit slow. You kind of established what was going on pretty quickly, and you kept pushing that narrative further and further and further. And maybe it was to push KT over the edge, who of course plays was played by Isaac Gonzalez, who again that's another character that I loved. And we get almost no action sequences with KT. You get one. And then you get a little bit at the end as well, but that's it. But then that one action sequence that she gets when she's supposed to be going after Wiggins, right? That was bad ass. And we don't get any more of that, really. Not enough. So, again, the characters that I liked the most, we don't really get enough of. That's just the thing. I'm not sure this movie could have been... That's the that was the frustrating thing for for me about this movie. The action se- while the action sequences were they cool? Yeah, but they were like Vin Diesel cool, right? They were exactly kind of what you'd expect from a Vin Diesel action movie. The the over the top action sequences, right? I actually do think that they did a good job at displaying the nanites, explaining what the nanites were, what they did, showing them in action, and I thought it was really cool when you got to see the nanites do their thing, right? They did that very, very well in this movie. If they did anything well with the explanation of something, it was that. They did a great job 
with the nanites. The problem is, is that you kind of skimmed over everything else or made it like it didn't really matter. And that was one of the frustrating things for me. I did like that everybody had their own different set of abilities, though, too. I, I definitely liked that as well. But at the same time, there's just so many other things that I feel like this movie could have been, right? You obviously established your... You, you, Jimmy Dalton was an established guy that you're going to hate throughout the entire movie. He makes no bones about it, right? Guy Pierce, same thing, but you automatically hate him because you've hated him in so many other movies already that you kind of automatically hate him in a movie when you see him, right? I know I do. And by the way, if Guy Pierce hears this, maybe, you know, if he ever hears this, that's a compliment, by the way. Hating somebody automatically because you're always the villain or you end up being the villain, that's the thing. And and here's the here's the other part. They kind of waste Tony Kebbell's character as well, Martin Axe, who was very like a charismatic kind of B villain, right, in the movie that you find out wasn't really a villain, right? He was just somebody that worked at Project Rising Spirit, but at the same time, it, that was a character that you could have let that drag out a little bit more. I would have let that drag out more. And then you bring Barris in, and you find out that Barris is part of the, the project as well. You could have almost skipped Barris and just used Martin Axe as the example, let that drag out a little more, and then pull the veil off. You, Barris was not... That, was a, that whole sequence with Barris was unnecessary for me. And again, the action, cool. Loved it. With some good action sequences, but at the same time, you could have given me a second action sequence going after Martin Axe, and but giving me more of that charismatic villain that they created through Project Rising Spirit to make, you know, Bloodshot be the hammer, and you didn't need multiple targets to take out to to put that point in in front either to try and cover your tracks. You could have used that one target, so I just think that. They could have done without that. And as far as Vin Diesel and how he was as Bloodshot, as Ray Garrison, I mean, he was okay. I I, I could have, you know, again, you either love Vin Diesel or you don't sort of thing, right? I've never, I've not, I'm not a huge fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. I've seen a few of them. I enjoy them, but but not because of Vin Diesel necessarily. Vin Diesel's is only going to give you so much, and there's so much depth that you can have with a character like Ray Garrison and Bloodshot and everything that he's that he goes through and has gone through. And I get it. This was a very beginning piece of this story. This was an origin story. But at the same time, you tried to give me depth with what was going on with his wife, and you give me basically five minutes of finding out that she's moved on and has another family. And he just sort of deals with that in 30 seconds and you move on. You gave me no depth for this character beyond with the character. You gave me more depth for sympathy for Ray Garrison through KT than you did through Ray Garrison. We get you, you, you give me the frustrated angry guy that wants revenge. You give me revenge, 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 and that is part of who Bloodshot is. But he's so much more than that. And we did not get that in this movie. So, as I've been talking about this for like 10 minutes, you're probably like, well, so you hated it. I didn't, I actually didn't hate it. 
The action sequences were enjoyable. I thought that there were, like I said, there were some, definitely some good characters in there. I actually think that Sam Hugan did do a good job as Jimmy Dalton. He did. He gave me what I what I wanted, and that was a sub-villain, I guess you could call him, to hate. I love the Wiggins character. I thought KT was great. The problem is, is that the stuff I thought was great, I don't feel like I got enough of. And the stuff that I thought was just kind of okay, I got a lot of. And that was the frustrating thing for me. And I wanted this movie to be great because I loved the character. And that's where my frustration comes in. It's everything this movie could have been and fell and got so close to and then fell just short of, it seemed like, every single time. So that was my... It's not that I didn't like the movie. I did. And would I tell you to see it? Yeah, I would because I I, I think that you'd still... If you just like a good action movie, this this was it. It gave you a lot of good action, some very cool sequences. You know, we've seen the whole fighting while falling down thing, so that's not necessarily one of them. It's more of the middle piece action sequences and the little bits you get from KT as well. By the way, I love that they didn't force like a relationship angle between KT and Ray Garrison. I thought that would have been really, really forced. They did not do that. I thought that was a smart choice. So they they did make a good choice there. I'm just saying that there are so many things this movie could have been and fell just short of. And it also frustrates me because I don't see a future beyond this movie for Bloodshot. And I know that there's something open-ended, like, where are we going? Who knows? How, what kind of a... T- I don't know what to do with that, okay? It's like, you don't know where to go next, so let's just leave it like that. It's like there's no plan. And I kind of thought there would be, and maybe that's on me. Maybe that's a frustration I shouldn't have, because maybe that's not what they were thinking. But I thought that that's what, what was going to be happening, so I was a little frustrated about that as well. So don't take this as, I didn't like the movie, Take this as it was good, but it could have been so much better than it was. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Bloodshot movie up next. Yes, there is some nerd news to talk about and even a trailer. Imagine that. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Cameron Beacon Doba from Gotham, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Searching through every corner of the nerd world, it is time for nerd news. And I say that because, man, I mean, like, with quarantine culture going on right now, there's not a whole lot of news to report, and certainly not a whole lot of major stuff to talk about. But there is some stuff, like Netflix dropping the trailer for Extraction, their brand new movie with Chris Hemsworth from the Russo Brothers, which is going to be coming out on April the 24th. This is based on the 2014 Oni, uh, Oni Press graphic novel, by the way, Ciudad, in case you did not know that, which was written by the Russos and Andre and Andy Parks and illustrated by Fernanda Leon Gonzalez. So, basically, Chris Hemsworth plays Tyler Rake, who is a mercenary kind of embarks on a deadly, in a deadly extract, the deadliest, excuse me, extraction of his career when he's enlisted to rescue the kidnapped son of an imprisoned international crime lord who is at odds with another crime lord of his own. So, and you see a whole, but there's, I mean, the action sequences in this trailer, if you've seen it already, wow. I mean, there's a lot of intense stuff, but there's also a really interesting story in this as well in that 
the mission clearly goes horribly wrong, and now Hemsworth is trying to protect this boy that he just saved, and you kind of find out why as the trailer goes on. It's because Hemsworth's character, Rake, has lost a child of his own, and he's just not going to let this kid go. He's just not going to let this kid die, and it seems like literally everyone is against him. I got serious born identity vibes from this, even though we weren't talking about a child in that case, but the me against the world sort of mentality that Jason Bourne had to go through and the action sequences that were, that went along with that and how skilled Tyler Rake really, really is. I think really gave me born identity vibes a lot. And Chris Hemsworth, I mean, Chris Hemsworth's just an entertaining dude anyway. I mean, he could play serious. He can absolutely play, you, you know, the, the funny guys. Well, we've seen that many times. So he, the range that he could bring to something like this, I think is really, really cool. And he's just got that confidence that you need to play a character like Tyler Rake. So I'm really looking forward to Extraction on Netflix, actually. Yes, we'll be, we will be reviewing that here on the podcast when it comes out at some point, so stick around for that. Now, I want to dive into a couple of opinion things before I dive into more Netflix news. And one of them is that I've been seeing a lot of reports, and I don't want to really name names, and I'm not really calling anybody out on this, but I'm seeing a lot of reports that, you know, now is the time for Marvel and DC to do a crossover and sort of help save the comic book industry once things start to get moving. A little bit again. And, you know, hey, I'd be lying if if I said I would not welcome that. You know, getting some Amalgam stuff back again. Getting to have Marvel and DC characters together on the page. I think would be great. Uh, Just don't, if you're, uh, let me put it this, first, before I get into my opinion on any of this. If we're going to do this, if this is really going to happen, can we drop the whole versus veil? I mean, can we really, really not do the whole versus thing again? Like, seriously, why on earth would you even try to do that again? So if, if we're going to do this, guys, let's not do the whole versus thing. If anything else, if the reason is to band together to save the comic book industry, make this a situation where the characters of Marvel and DC Comics have to come together to save the world or save the universe from something. Can we do it so how the, so they come together instead of the versus thing? Because the versus thing is so played in comics, TV, movies. Let's stop it. Stop it. Let's come together for once. And and usually versus doesn't mean versus anyway. You end up coming together as anyway. So just drop drop the veil on that, please. But here's my thing. And one of the reasons why I can't just go ahead and say that this is a great plan to save comics. Now, certainly comic shops would make make some money from this. There's no doubt about that. No disputing that at all. But And this might be an unpopular opinion, but saving comics goes beyond just saving comic shops, quite frankly. And I love, I, I lo- I love the local shops. I think you should absolutely support your local shop. You know, get your pulls, pick them up. When you're supposed to, get some back issues, collectibles, what have you, at your local shops, not anywhere else. I'm absolutely saying that, but what I'm saying is is that it's hard to save local shops when they might not have enough stuff to sell. And I mean, 
I, I know that a lot of people's polls are 80% or more of DC and Marvel anyway, but imagine if that was some of your only options. What happens to publishers like IDW, like Dark Horse, like Image, like Oni Press, like Lion Forge, like Vault Comics? Like, I mean, I could, Boom Studios, I could go on and on and on. What happens if these people who are buying comics that, you know, aren't exactly flush with cash after this whole pandemic has been going on and some of whom might have lost their jobs, how many people are going to be able to spend a ton of money on comics outside of DC and Marvel if they do this crossover? And quite frankly, you and I both know, and this is no knock on DC and Marvel either because they're going to do what they usually do to make money because you know what's going to happen with this? There's going to be a, There would be a main storyline, but then there'd just be a ton of tie-ins and crossovers and things like that. Maybe that's all they should do. Maybe there shouldn't be a main story, but I, you and I both know they're not going to be able to do that because what happens, and DC and Marvel are both guilty of the same thing. You have your major arc, and then you have a thousand spinoffs that go along with it. And if you don't keep up with the spinoffs, if you don't keep up, if you don't keep up with the with the, with the tie-ins, then you're going to be missing at least part of the story that's going to end up coming into the main line, and you'll get the little editor's note saying, "Well, you know, you should probably read this," and that's when you find out. So it's not just buying a single run of a main story from DC and Marvel in a crossover. It's it's the tie-ins as well, and there has to be some consideration taken in for that. So if you're spending all this money when money's going to be in short supply once things sort of start to get back to normal and people start to recover from this, are you going to be able to afford the main run, then the tie-ins, and then also your smaller publishers like, you know, like Boom Studios and the, and, and the likes of that because and, and Valiant, and I'll get into some Valiant here in just a second. But seriously, where where is the money for those left? Because if you look at the numbers from Diamond when Diamond was still doing their thing, you know, over 60%, sometimes more than that, of comic book sales are DC and Marvel. So, yeah, hugely important. But those other percentages are pretty darn important as well. I mean, sometimes the numbers are even higher than that. But there's but but think about it. Those numbers could be even more inflated. You could be talking about more than 80 85% DC and Marvel if this were to happen. Now, there's some hardcore fans of comics that's, you know, they'll, they'll never let go of their image stories or the IDW, or Valiant Comics, or, you know, Archie Comics. There's just certain stories that you're always going to gravitate to. But, and even if those the and even if those publishers cut their lines a little bit, should they have to? Should they have to to do this for Marvel and DC, who are the two bigger companies who, while are, they are losing money, are going to be all are going to be fine at the end of the day because they have major parent companies that are going to back them. That is not going to be happening for these other publishers, except for maybe Valiant because they've got a little bit of a deal with I think it's DMG. But still, this is not necessarily going to save comics the way that some people might think that it is. So before you go ahead wishing for a DC Marvel crossover, think about what that might do to other publishers as well. Unless you can get everybody in the pool. Like, you know when they do these 
when they do these telethons on TV, like they do, they bring, like they bring all the late night hosts together, right? And and, and they're going to host this big thing and, you know, to help raise money for people that have been suffering through through the pandemic or in families and things like that. Everybody comes together. If you could find a way to do a massive crossover with all the major publishers and everybody gets a little bit of a piece, that would be a good solution. I don't know how logistically you pull that off, but that's something that you could do that would seem fair to everybody. But but it's not, again, I we do need to save the local shops somehow once this thing is all over. But at the expense of publishers that aren't the big two, I'm not sure that that is the solution to go ahead and do that. I said I was going to be talking about something Valiant related, and that is courtesy of John Cena. It's wrapped filming on the Suicide Squad, you know, you're thinking what's next for Cena as far as film-wise. And on his Instagram page, he just basically posts pictures and they're they're out of context. He doesn't tell you why. There's, there's no real context there. And he posted a couple pictures of Valiant's EXO Man of War. Now, cool that he likes EXO. I like EXO. Maybe you read EXO as well. But does that, what does this mean exactly? And in a time where... There's not a whole lot of news to talk about, and you can read too much into things. Let's read too much into this. Would you want John Cena playing Eric of Dacia? Would you want him to be playing that character? Or would you rather have someone else playing that character? Now, certainly John Cena has the the action chops to pull this off, right? I'm not saying that at all, but here's my thing. And I'll go back to what I was saying with my review of the Bloodshot movie. When we're talking about lead actors for these characters, John Cena, yeah, he can be funny. He can be serious. We've seen him play both. But at the same time, he's not that guy that I look at and go, that's Exo Man of War. Physically, he's got the tools. He will look the part. But this is a character... It's very important, just like Bloodshot was, to add that depth and add this this larger-than-life presence, but also this meaningful side to it as well that I'm not sure John Cena can really pull off. So, I mean, you want to ask me who I would pick? I mean, Ryan Gosling, I think, would be a decent choice. Uh, How about Dan Stevens? who, of course, you remember from Legion and Beauty and the Beast and other things like that. I think he'd be another good choice as well. Kit Harrington might might even be a decent choice if we're talking if we're talking about I mean there there are other choices out there that I'm not that I'm and I'm not sure that John Cena is anywhere near the top of my list. The fact that he likes XO is great, but you know, just because somebody likes something Does that mean that they're automatically qualified to play the character? Absolutely not. I mean, even Jamie Lannister would be would be I think would be an interesting choice. Uh, Nicole uh, uh, Coster, well, well, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm not even going to try, but you know who I'm talking about—the guy who played Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones. Another choice that I think that you could make there, but John Cena—I'm just not sure he's got. It's more than just being able to have a great action sequence. There's got to be more to it than that 
when you're talking about Exo Man of War. And I just don't know if John Cena is the guy. And by the way, this isn't even a movie that's announced yet or anything like that. This is all conjecture at this point based on a photo that John Cena posted on Instagram that may mean absolutely nothing other than the fact that he's a fan of the character or he's pitching himself. But, and I like John Cena, and I think that there are certain roles that suit him. I'm just not sure this is one of them. I think that we can do a little bit better than that. Here's something that I am looking forward to, and bravo to Netflix for jumping all over this. You know the Space Force is a real thing. It's going to be a branch of the of the military, and it is also going to be a brand new series on Netflix. In case you don't remember, this, this news about this actually dropped, I think it was like, what, in September of last year? But it was easy to forget. Now we know that Space Force is going to be coming to Netflix on May the 29th, and Steve Carell is going to be leading the way. You've also got John Malkovich going to be a part of this, Lisa Kudrow, Ben Schwartz. There's a whole bunch of great, great actors involved in this. And the synopsis goes, a decorated pilot with dreams of running the Air Force, four-star General Mark R. Naird, of course played by Steve Carell, is thrown for a loop when he finds himself tapped to lead the newly formed sixth branch of the U.S. Armed Forces Space Force. Skeptical but dedicated, Mark uproots his family and moves to a remote base in Colorado where he and a colorful team of scientists and spacemen are tasked by the White House with getting American boots on the moon again in a hurry. So, I know HBO kind of just had Avenue 5. That's a that's kind of a little bit of a different story though. It was more like a space cruise, but but still it's it's kind of it's you know similar enough that the vibe is there. So, we won't be too far removed from that when this goes ahead and starts up. But I I want to know how how seriously the Space Force is going to be taken in this series, is this just going to be a constant knock on the fact that this thing is actually going to exist, or are they going to take it a little bit of a step further? Further, I mean, I'm for it either way. Don't get me wrong. I mean, especially with this cast, I'm for it no matter what. I think it's going to be funny, just based on the people involved alone. But how interesting it's going to be, and what kind of an angle they decide to take, I think is going to be the most interesting part about this whole thing. I mean, I mean, look, the, the, the first look photos that I saw, they look good. They don't reveal much, but they look pretty good. And the science of this, I think, is going to be really, really interesting as well. So, I, I mean, count me in for Space Force on, March, on May the 29th on Netflix. And yeah, you know, of course, I'm going to be reviewing the show on here as early as possible. Plus, this is a great thing to kind of shake things up a little bit in the sci-fi realm. Not enough good sci-fi comedy out there, so if we're going to go ahead and add to that mix, then I think that that's something that I would certainly welcome, and I think that you would as well. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, how about we talk a little bit of Canto with series creators David Boer and Drew Zucker. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Amelia Jones from Netflix's Rock and Key, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. There's certain stories that when you read them, they just stick with you. And for me, IDW's Canto was certainly one of those. Volume 1 of Canto is available now wherever you buy your books or digital copies of your graphic novels. Just happen to have both creators with me this week, writer David Boer and artist Drew Zucker. Gentlemen, what's up? 
How you doing? It's we're hanging in there. Yeah, been a, it has been kind of an exciting week with the uh, trade coming out. And although there's been tons of challenges, we don't want to seem like dismal, dismal Doris. So we're actually pretty excited to be here. That that was a very unique way to put that. I don't think I've ever heard dismal Doras before in my life. Yeah, really. <laughs> here we are. Well, if, if, I mean, if, if there was ever a way to inject positivity into things, it's got to be talking about Kanto. I mean, I remember when I read the first issue how much the character just stuck with me so long after I read it and I wanted to keep going. So for anyone who doesn't already know, and shame on them, first of all, talk about the story itself and actually how it came about. Kanto is kind of a, a, a new fairy tale about a little tin race of tin people, clockwork knights, and they've been enslaved and they're not allowed to have names. They're not allowed to have relationships. They're not allowed to care for one, one another. And our title character is Kanto, and he sort of defies all of that and they're, when they're taken and enslaved, their hearts are removed and replaced with clocks. And so when their time is up, they just go into the furnaces and that's it. So there's not a lot of hope in this world. But then Kanto, he defies the slavers and he falls in love with a little tin girl whose clock gets damaged beyond repair. And so he ends up having to go out into his big fantastical world, think Dark Crystal, Never Ending Story, that kind of thing, and find where they take their hearts to bring hers back to save her. So we like to say it's part adventure, part fantasy, and all heart. Now, to me, too, the character designs were just so very unique, especially for Kanto and, like you said, his people. What was the process for coming up with that particular design and for actually choosing clocks to replace the hearts with instead of maybe something else? Well, I think clocks has to do with um, sort of the hopelessness in the world. And if you, uh, I encourage readers, we both encourage readers to go and read the trade. And there's an explanation as to why their hearts are removed mm -hmm. um, as his adventure goes on. But it's all about hope and removing hope and holding on to it. And so sort of when you, when you know your time is going to expire at some specific point, it's sort of hopeless to fight against that. You know, Kanto sort of is defiant of that lack of hope. And Drew, for you, what was the process like coming up with these designs and just playing with different ideas? So Kanto himself was pretty straightforward. Kanto started all Kanto was done as just like a character sketch about seven years before I even met David. And then when David and I decided to do a project together and I brought the original concept of Kanto to him, Kanto himself only really went through about two or three rounds of redesign to really get him to his current point. You know, as far as designing the rest of the world, it's a, it, there is so much influence from so many different areas that it's impossible to like actually pinpoint it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff pulled from, you know, just me walking around in the woods with my dog to like some of the microorganisms that are in this planet. I mean, all you have to do is kind of look around at what's on the planet and you can pull as much influence as you could possibly need from it. Now, to me, there's been a lot of stories about quests and fantasy stories over the years. And I mean, given that, were there any tropes that you really wanted to try and avoid, whether it be in the story or just in the presentation overall? From my perspective, every time we started, I, as I'm telling the story or as I'm writing the scripts, Every time I would run up to what I thought was a trope or something expected, I always like to turn it 180 degrees on its head to really surprise the audience. 
So it's taking those pieces in part, sort of like what Drew was saying about the inspiration for the visuals and the art, just taking the pieces and parts of the stories that we know and the fairy tales that we know and turning them on their head and giving them a new spin. And I think something that was very important for me personally for the story, and I think for Drew as well, is that we wanted to tell a story that you could get behind the main character almost immediately. And, you know, Drew's character design is so good for Kinto. I, within about half a second of me seeing his first concept art for this character, I said, I don't know who this character is or what his story is, but we're going to tell it. So for me, it was important to start a story where you could get behind the character immediately and setting up an adventure and a quest to save somebody else other than himself. I don't think we see that enough in fantasy stories. I think you see a lot of adventure and fantasy where it's about the hero fulfilling a quest for his own or her own destiny. And I wanted this to be a quest where maybe at the end it is about Kanto's destiny, but his his what spurred him to go on it to begin with was trying to save somebody else. Yeah, and as as far as uh, the visuals go and staying away from you know tropes and cliches of of this kind of genre. When we started out, I was coming off of doing a horror book. So I I had been drawing super violent, historically accurate stuff for like the last year and a half. And I made this attempt to actually try to car- make my stuff a little more cartoony. And the end result of it was I think we got two pages in and I was just like, I- I'm not feeling it. And I went back and just went, you know what, draw the way you normally draw and it seems to have worked out for us that not not toning down the way I do stuff, obviously toning down some of the content, mm-hmm. but not toning down just my generalized approach to things has worked out well for us. So if anybody hasn't read Volume 1 yet, I certainly don't want to give any spoilers of any big reveals or anything like that, but I thought the story of The Shrouded Man was an incredible one just throughout the entire course of the first volume. So how important was it for you guys for your villain to kind of remain a mystery until almost the very end, really. I set out with uh, telling this, crafting a story. Drew and I both felt it was important. World building is important generally in fantasy and adventure and sci-fi. But I get so fatigued and so tired of reading stories where they, they try to hand you everything about the world right out of the gate Mm -hmm. and it's just i like to refer to it as drinking from the fire hose it's just way too much to handle so kanto's story is designed so that you start you know at almost the you know a pinpoint of his worlds and that's all he really knows and as he starts experiencing it the reader's starting to learn about it through his eyes and so this meta meta story structure about the uh, knight going on the quest to save the princess was our way of giving a framework to Kanto's adventure and his beliefs. And this is what he's is pushing him forward. And by the end of the story is, is this story of the night? What is it accurate? What, what about storytelling? How much of a storyteller, how much of the storyteller is poured into the telling of the story and how does it change? And so I think that's why we felt that the the story of the night as the meta structure for this worked because 
it's such a surprise as to how it all plays out, both for Kanto and we certainly hope for the readers by the time they get to the end of this first arc. Absolutely. And, and maybe this is just something that I pulled out of reading this myself, but I feel like there's an underlying story here about failure and how it's all about perception or how, how someone's journey is perceived. So was that something that you kind of hoped readers would get out of the story or was this, that, that's just something that I just kind of pulled out of thin air? I think it's, is, is I, I think it is about um, what we, what we hope for and what we set out to do. Maybe necess- you might not achieve it, but also maybe that's not necessarily what you, sh- you, needed to be seeking to begin with. So it's not that, you know, Kanto's adventure to save this tin girl he loves was for nothing or, um, you know, isn't what he should be doing. But at the end of the day, if you don't achieve your goals, you have to understand the purpose, why you set out, what you actually achieved anyway. Even if you don't reach what you set out to do, what have you gotten anyway? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're talking to David Boer and, of course, Drew Zucker, the creators of Canto from IDW, Volume 1, available right now. Now, David, you said something at the end of the graphic novel. You talk about some of the stuff that's in there when you were talking about Canto and you were talking about The Wizard of Oz and you were talking about something that L. Frank Baum said we're talking about the wonderment and joy are retained and the heartaches and the nightmares are left out. And I feel like the one thing that was never lost in this story is hope. So from the both of your perspectives, we talk, kind of talked about this right before we came on the air about how things are just right now in general. Is Canto just the kind of story that we need right now? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the shortest um, answer he's ever given. <laughs> ever. In any interview ever. Um, yes. I, and I, I don't say that because I just, I, I want people to go out and buy the book. I think we, we, we set out to tell a story that when you put it down, you, we might break your heart, but you know that there is, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and the way things are right now to, to have something to look forward to and hope for that, you know, things are pretty terrible right now. But at the end of the day, uh, when we're all through this, we might find that we might discover something that we never knew we needed or wanted, but it's waiting there for us. Yeah, we also, I've talked about this a few times now on other podcasts that one of the things we kind of set out to do was reclaim the the label of all ages back from where it's been sitting with comics, Mm -hmm. where all ages tends to have this negative connotation with it, where it's these pandering books are just for kids and it treats them like kids. And we kind of set out to make a book that the reality that, you know, it has hope in it, but it, it doesn't shy away from the reality and the hardships that come with it. But it, it can kind of show you that, you know, we're not sugarcoating it for you, but yeah, you'll go through hardships, but there's, there's something good potentially on the other side of it. And the hope is just in Canto's eyes, this entire story. And Drew, I think that, that that's a testament to you as well. You don't, you don't just get that in the words on the page either in his eyes this entire book you can just see the hope just beaming out of him and that's one of the things that drew me to it so much yeah that that was before we started even doing pages i think i have about six or seven pages in the sketchbook of figuring out how to how to draw eyes that will emote everything Mm -hmm. uh 
and it, it essentially comes down to a threefold like trifecta that has to work together. It has to be the the eyes, obviously. It has to be his body language, but it also has to be what direction Cantor's head is, mm-hmm. or for any of the tens. And what it ends up coming down to is whatever way you choose to angle, you whatever how you choose to use the the camera angle in conjunction with the angle on the head will give you a more extreme or pulled back emotion. I have to say that Drew is uh, just been those eyes that he created for Kanto and his people are just remarkable. And this book could not work if they fell even a fraction short of what he's been able to do. So, you know, all the kudos and credit to Drew for creating a face where nothing moves but the eyes and you know exactly what Kanto's feeling in every moment. Mm-hmm, exactly, exactly. And speaking of every, everything that's going on, I, I feel like I have to ask for this, this for anybody that's a big Kanto fan. We know that the story was set to continue with Kanto and the Clockwork Fairies, so with so much up in the air right now, do you have any updates if fans are going to be able to get to experience this story in May? Do we know if, there, if there's a delay there? Do you guys know anything yet yourselves? We know for sure that uh, the one-shot Canto and the Clockwork Fairies that was slated for May 20th is delayed. We have Canto 2 that was slated to start in July. We have not heard if that's moving yet, but it might be a cascading effect. We don't know yet. However, pre-orders are still open for the one-shot. It's still being solicited. So anybody who's listening, please, please, please contact your local comic shop. Pre-order the book. We don't know if it's going to get resolicited. We have no idea what's going to happen. So get your order in now. My understanding is that um, people have been responding to the previews that we've set out. So uh, just make sure that you can get your copy, whether that's through mail order or if you still have curbside pickup, that sort of thing, if we're still doing all this in May. And uh, I, I will say this. As far as we know, our, our assumption is that Canto 2 will most likely be pushed back uh, just in the cascading effect of what's mm-hmm. going to happen. We obviously we have no idea when this will end, but that's kind of our assumption right now. But on the plus side, we aren't stopping work uh, work on it. We're, we're working away and trying to get as far ahead as we can and using the time to kind of make it even better uh, and not compromise in any part of it. That's definitely good news. Now, I know that you guys were at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, and I'm sure that you know, you've know you done other appearances in the past as well. Now, how much do you miss that, and have you gotten to see any great Kanto cosplayers at any appearances that you've been at? If David sees a Kanto cosplayer, the whole country's going to hear him screaming. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. When I see that little six-year-old, eight-year-old kid run up in the little... Um, night night cosplay i'm just gonna die i it's 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 sort of breaks my heart to think about the shows that are canceled right now WonderCon was supposed to happen and that's been postponed and we had some really amazing show exclusive type things that we were going to do at WonderCon. we're still trying to make that happen via you know virtually or however we're going to end up being able to do that but I love going to the shows. I've gone to San Diego Comic-Con for 15 years. I love going to the shows, and it's definitely changed the experience going as a um, creator rather than a fan, or in addition to being a fan. 
But yeah, I mean, Drew and I, this past year's experience at the shows has been just a mind-bogglingly amazing experience. This was my first San Diego. Yeah, uh, it was a hell of a San Diego, to say the least. No question about it. Now, before I let you guys go, I feel like I have to ask, even though this seems so far because of everything that's going on, I have to ask about the possibility of maybe seeing Kanto on the screen at some point. Now, when I reviewed the first issue, I and you guys even mentioned Dark Crystal, I got the Jim Henson vibe pretty quickly when I was reading this story. So is Kanto a story you'd kind of like to see done similarly in maybe live action? Or do you think that this might be better suited for an animated type, type series? I think it could be both or yeah. either live action CGI or animation. And, and I'll just say this, uh, whenever we get asked this question, I always say, uh, we always set out to tell a uh, an amazing comic, mm-hmm. an amazing graphic novel, and for whatever life Kanto has beyond the page uh, is a bonus for us, and we would of course love it. But um, yeah, telling a good comic was is is has always been our first priority, and you know if we get a little animated Kanto running around, that would be uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> I could just see the Kanto action figure line too, but that's just me, guys. Come on. If if it happens, it's a uh, it's a bucket list thing for me. So don't don't think it isn't on our minds too. We'd very much like to see it. Well, one of the ways that you as fans can support that get Kanto Volume One is called "If I Only Had a Heart." Right now, I think you can still find it at bookstores, some of your local comic shops, like David was saying, if they've still got curbside pickup. Also, digital retailers. An option for that as well. And like they were saying, pre-order Kanto and the Clockwork Fairies, which was set to come out in May. Whenever it comes out, you want to make sure that you get your hands on it. It's writer David Boer, Drew Zucker, artist. Thank you so much for joining me this week. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit abo- a little bit bummed about not being able to be at WonderCon in Anaheim this weekend. I certainly share David and Drew's feelings about that. But you know what? Is so great is you can still, if you haven't yet, read Canto Volume 1. Get it at your favorite bookstore now. Pre-order it and or pre-order it from your local shop. Or you know what? Just get it however you can. This is a story that is going to uplift you if you're stuck at home. And it's definitely one of those quarantine reads that if you haven't jumped into this IDW series yet, you're going to want to get Volume 1 of Canto. And look out for Canto and the Clockwork Fairies as well. At some point... Got a chance to read it a little bit early. You won't be disappointed. That's really all that I can say there. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to David Brewer and Drew Zucker for joining me this week. And remember, you can find my review of the first issue of Canto at downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, follow us along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.